You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Thames Water sinking under more than £14 billion of debt. HSBC to vacate iconic Canary Wharf skyscraper, low-income renters left with nowhere to live amid unaffordability crisis, and most UK rail ticket offices set to close within weeks. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top UK architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Prudence Ivy. Prudence is editor of Homes and Property at the Evening Standard and guest curator of this year's Open House Festival. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thames Water, the largest water and sewerage company in the UK, serving a whopping 15 million people across London and Oxfordshire, is sinking under more than £14 billion of debt and verging on collapse. This story has been covered extensively by the national media this week as the beleaguered company's chief executive resigned amid debate over the water provider's future. It is a debate that has also seen the question of renationalisation resurface. After three decades of private ownership, the water provider, which currently serves a quarter of the UK population, has amassed one of the highest debts in the industry, largely thanks to a toxic combination of aggressive cost-cutting, under-investing in essential infrastructure and the paying out of huge dividends to shareholders. This has resulted in record levels of sewage discharges, service disruptions, pipe leaks and a criminal investigation into illegal sewage dumping by the Environment Agency as well as an inquiry by the regulatory body Ofwat. At the time, proponents of the wave of privatisation which swept the UK in the 80s and 90s claimed public services operating under private sector balance sheets would be able to leverage private financial resources to deliver better services, improve water quality and also lower bills for consumers. However, graphs published in The Guardian this week reveal a different story. Macquarie, the Australian infrastructure asset management firm who bought Thames Water in 2006, reportedly borrowed against their assets in order to increase dividend payouts. And by the time it sold its stake in the company, Thames Water's debts had more than tripled. The dire portrait of mismanagement and financial recklessness has been further compounded by the scale of the environmental devastation wreaked by water companies across the UK. In 2022 alone, the BBC reported that raw, untreated sewage was pumped into rivers and seas for 1.7 million... Sorry. 
for 1.75 million hours, an average of 825 times a day. So Prudence, what's this all about? How has this company, with enormous physical assets and an effective monopoly over an essential resource in a big part of the southeast of England, ended up on the verge of collapse? Part of the answer is in your question. Um, you've got the word monopoly there. You end up with these private companies with zero competition running a public utility and they're free to do what they want with it. They're answerable to their shareholders, not to the people drinking their water, bathing in their water, trying not to have their homes flooded. So eventually, if you pump enough money out of something without pumping any resources back in, sorry, some horrible pumping um, <laughs> <laughs> puns there, you, you end up in the situation we're in. It, it feels almost inevitable, frankly. I mean, is there any way a monopoly could have been successful? Because you, you have to have... Uh, a monopoly over a certain area if it is water I mean you can't have different people wheeling and dealing in the street trying to sign you up for sure different... I can't choose which pipe which tap I turn on to um yeah there are there are instances where one body running something for example TFL can do so pretty efficiently and pretty well as far as I'm concerned they need to have accountability be that through voting uh, or some other means of having the monopoly taken away from them if they're not doing it correctly um, but they also need to be they need to be investing in that service as well so all this debate obviously it's, it's raised questions about whether or not um, privatizing was a good idea in the first place uh, the former conservative leader michael howard he's weighed in on the discussion he served as the minister in thatcher's government at the time of these privatizations when when the ball started rolling on them um, and he told the BBC Radio Falls Today programme, um, this is his quote, uh, it goes, the point about public ownership is this, if you have the industry in public ownership, it has to compete for resources with health, with education, with the police, with all the other legitimate demands on the public purse. And water, when it was in public ownership, was way down the queue. Michael Howard goes on, when you release it into the private sector, you have recourse to private capital, you can make the investment that's needed. That's the end of his quote. Um, that's an interesting point because, like those graphs in the Guardian, they were able to borrow tons of money. Okay, uh, at a moment when credit was quite cheap, following the crash, at a time when the public sector politically wasn't borrowing money or as much as uh, it could have. Um, so, Prudence does does Michael Howard have a point here? Did the privatisation kind of set water free? It allowed it access to credit, um, and you know, perhaps would Thames Water be even even worse state today if it hadn't had a chance to to get those crumbs of money off the fr the feeding frenzy? I mean, I suppose my first question would be, how could it be in a worse state? Um, you know, what more sewage? Uh, worse floods. I mean, the water tastes kind of neutral at the minute. It could taste really bad. It could taste really bad. I mean, yeah. you look, we could have toxic drinking water. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of that we haven't got at the moment. Um, but I think we also make a bit of a mistake when we insist that there are two options. Either it's run by the government or it's run by this completely unaccountable private company that refuses to invest in it. Uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting a kind of Blairite third way. But I do think there are other ways of having public services run publicly, but not necessarily by the government that might be more effective. And I think the trouble is, is when we allow the conversation to become about nationalising or running things by the government, there's enough people who are still alive who remember the kind of crumbly, desolate 70s who will stand there and just think, God, no, 
not again, we don't want that. Perhaps a different public company could do it better. The problem with private industry in this country, in this era, is it just exposes all of the worst facets of human nature. You know, there's supposed to be this idea of kind of um, considerate capitalism or uh, responsible business. And actually, all this exposes is that given an inch, people will take a mile. They will do what they can to maximise profit because that is actually their job. Yeah. And these things are broken, you know. But it's amazing because if you look at the charts and you look at the narrative, it's like the, the, the one person who believes least in the viability of Thames Water as a profitable financial instrument are the people running it. Exactly. Like everything they were doing basically said, it screams, this business doesn't work yeah, and yeah. We're, trying to, we're, try, we're trying to make it work in the least sustainable way. Yes, absolutely. And, it, and you think, okay, yeah, you either have be- a better regulatory framework. Some people are saying off what was regulating it very well and actually the collapse of Thames Water would kind of vindicate indicate off mm. what uh, mm. uh, but then there's also the other argument of yeah could there be a publicly owned company which simply has a charter which involves profits going back to the state mm-hmm. if it was a publicly owned company you couldn't really imagine it taking such radical moves to generate revenue could you or to b- borrowing that much or, w- or would it look i don't really know how the finances would work but i think the difference is certainly the graphs suggest that the business was seeing its goal its aim as to generate profit you know its aim was not to provide a good water service and it didn't have to provide a good water service because no we were we were a captive market nobody could go elsewhere and so actually when the goal is is not to provide water but to to make money then yeah probably they were doing a good job in that in well, they weren't even doing a good job, actually, it turns out. But, you know, people have been making quite a lot of money from this. Uh, to me, that's the issue with having having it as a private business uh, without any of the other sort of checks on business that come when there is a competitive market. A lot of the coverage in the, the news the past week obviously has focused on the debt element of this story. It's shocking. However, there's also this you know, powerful environmental aspect of it as well. Um, accusations being levelled not just at Thames Water, but across the private water company sector uh, in England, um, who've effectively been dumping deadly amounts of raw, untreated sewage into our waterways. Um, so this week, Thames Water was fined £3.3 million after discharging millions of litres of undiluted sewage into two rivers in 2017. Uh, that killed four 1,400 fish. Um, So Prudence, the the environmental concerns around sewage dumping, they have been around for decades. Um, However, this story is getting bigger and bigger every year. Why is this such such a big story right now more than ever before? Did I see somewhere that somebody had actually blamed rowers and open water swimmers for noticing that there was sewage? Yes, um, it was the boss of a water company in the House of Lords in, uh, committee was right, saying, yeah, that right. it's those damn kids. Damn we wouldn't... you, you're into water now. <laughs> God, yeah, yeah. it used to only be the surfers we had to worry about and now people <laughs> mind about the rivers too. Um yeah, I mean, look, yeah, surfers against sewage have been operating for, what, 20, 30 years, something like that? This has been happening on our beaches for years. It's um, They've been running a fantastic campaign. Um, and it just so happens that now we're all getting much more in touch with our kind of local spots of wildlife, nature, whatever it may be. And so, yeah, pe- the fact that people are noticing, the fact that people are wanting to use these spaces more is brilliant, especially if they end up holding these companies to account to some degree. You know, if they're saying... 
no, hang on, I'm sorry, but this is public space. We have right and to access this space and you've polluted it. Then fantastic, I say. If you look at the physical infrastructure, like say London, it's just had a massive downpour of rain in the last 24 hours. And the physical infrastructure is basically designed so it overflows and chucks everything in the River Thames. Mm. Um that maybe maybe that's their defence. They just say, you know, this is this is the way it's all built. Well, they've uh, been bleating about Victorian pipes for decades. We don't have to have Victorian pipes, you know. If they were a company that could invest in new infrastructure, we would have new pipes that could deal with ten million people's worth of twenty-first century sewage. Uh, I don't know. You know, it, this doesn't seem like the only option. It is interesting, important to note that. They're constructing the Thames uh, super sewer under the River Thames to kind of solve that Victorian infrastructure. Uh, I forgot about the Thames super sewer, but who is actually building and funding that? So that's a government-backed programme. Right, so but, that's not Thames Water. You but see, it that's is, another... Well, Thames Water will use it as an infrastructure because yeah, they, they run the sewers. So are they paying for it? Well... I believe it's uh, it's a government-funded project. Thames Water is is one of the partners. Yeah. I suspect Thames Water would operate it as an asset afterwards, yeah. so then they can borrow money against exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Maybe uh, if they had this sewer done a bit earlier, they'd be able to borrow a bit more cash. Yeah. <laughs> I know? mean, look, I, I talk about TfL all the time, but just you see the improvements they make to the system. You experience them yeah. around London. And I think that is a good example of things being done because they're not good enough and then they're getting corrected all the time you know like cycle lanes or even just you know connecting hackney downs and hackney central train station or whatever it might be there's things where they're like oh we've got a bit of cash we can do that now hsbc the banking giant which has occupied a prominent tower in canary wharf since its completion in 2002 has decided to relocate its offices to the city according to a report in the financial times last week the Bayamoth's departure from the iconic Canary Wharf skyline is expected to take place in 2027 when its current lease on the Foster & Partners designed 45-storey 8 Canada Square expires. The company's new headquarters is expected to be 81 Newgate Street, a former BT centre which is currently being transformed by American architectural firm KPF. The new site is roughly half the size of the existing offices and mirrors the exodus from large offices seen in cities around the world amid the rise in automation and working from home. Globally, HSBC is reducing its office space by around 40% and the bank's chief operating officer, John Hunshaw, told employers that it wanted to, quote, have an even more flexible and dynamic workspace that meets the needs of colleagues and clients, end quote. The office space downsizing of the $157 billion bank forms part of a bigger trend rocking the commercial real estate world as city centre landlords struggle to fill skyscrapers in the post-pandemic hybrid working environment. According to the Mortgage Backers Association, $1.4 trillion of commercial real estate loans are due this year in the US alone, and many owners are expected to default instead of borrowing more to pay those bills. So Prudence, what's this all about? Many of our listeners have probably never stepped foot in Canary Wharf. Um, why is this story such a big deal? How will it impact London, if not the whole UK as a world, or even the global economy? Like, Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Canary Wharf and the global economy. Um, so Canary Wharf is such a bizarre place, but it's had such an evolution over the past few years. I mean, I remember sort of uh, sitting on the DLR and going through Canary Wharf and just imagining these empty buildings of the future, you know, 
pre-pandemic, obviously, and thinking, God, yeah, what what happens if there's another crash and then nobody works in these offices and they're all empty and it's so dystopian and, you know, Blade Runner. And then, obviously, that happened. Um, but... Weirdly, I had to change tube in Canary Wharf or something fairly recently on a Saturday night. And I walked through Canary Wharf and I just, I felt so proved wrong. It was buzzing. People were sitting outside at the pavement cafe, having drinks. It was Saturday, so this wasn't an after work thing. Um, And I just thought, oh, is this all it takes? Is, you know, a few decades for something to bed in. Um, and obviously a landlord who is trying to change the change the provision of the area because the landlord now of Canary Wharf is seeing the way the wind is blowing and is going, OK, people are going to stop using these office spaces. But people do live here. I mean, people have lived in Canary Wharf for a long time. It's just it used to be this very depressing hellscape where you'd get all these bankers on maternity leave pushing their buggies around, looking yeah. utterly depressed and, you know, they had nowhere to go. Um, but now, yeah... It, he is now acknowledging that hey it's a riverside destination you know you could actually use the Thames ah shock horror and he's putting things like what stand up paddle boarding or whatever the time out experiences are but you know those little boats with the chimney hot tub boats it's not exactly going to save the British economy though like people going around on paddle boards I mean if I look at Canary Wharf it's got Mm. these enormous skyscrapers that were built with like huge tax Mm. subsidies Um, like all so many eggs have been put in this basket Um, not least the kind of this idea this outdated idea that these financial services would like trickle down and like share their riches with the people of tower hamlets which like evidently has not happened should should we all be concerned about this because if canary wharf was doing what it was meant to do on the tin Mm. surely as a society as a country um a lot of our fates are linked in to the success of canary wharf Mm, okay well there's i think there's a few things there number one i do think there's an issue with ongoing working from home um I hate to be on the side of Jacob Rees-Mogg and I would like to think that that is the only thing we agree on. But I I do think that this is actually an ongoing issue that is stifling ways of working, frankly. You know, we should be changing the way we operate in offices and we should be changing flexibility around that and we should be changing all sorts of things. But I'm not sure that we should be changing all working in the same place and having face-to-face meetings Uh, from time to time does everything need to be centered in one place i think what's more interesting about canary the canary wharf story is it's this like super planned super kind of top down we are going to build a financial center on this dockland like very symbolic you know finance is gonna win over industry and blah, blah blah you know and actually organically now that is kind of dying and The idea that even Canary Wharf, which was sort of imposed and planned and top-down created, has now got to cater to the changing whims of society is, to me, very interesting. And it would certainly be worth noting that it is quite in a good position to change because it has, like, amazing transport infrastructure. Amazing connections. This is another thing I wanted to say. It's so well connected. So, actually... Why wouldn't someone want to live there? You know, they can get everywhere. And the, and the centres of London are changing. You know, the fact that you're working here in the design district would have been unthinkable uh, five years ago.
New data shows just 4% of homes are affordable with housing benefit, pricing millions of low-income private renters out of the housing market. This is according to an exclusive report shared with ITV News. The research, conducted by homelessness charity Crisis and Zoopla, highlights the dire situation faced by nearly 2 million private renters in England who rely on housing benefits to cover their rent. Um, this is a figure which equates to more than one in three private renters. And um, vast majority of these people have jobs. The unaffordability crisis is underscored by the fact that the percentage of affordable homes in England has plummeted by 66% since last April, leaving a mere 4% of homes in England within reach for such aspiring tenants. The impact on low-income households has been magnified by the fact that local housing allowance rates, which determine how much financial assistance households can receive, have been frozen since 2020. Meanwhile, rents have continued to rise in the same period. Uh, some areas have seen rent hikes of up to 20%, for example, in the last year. The effect of this has been a shortfall between the benefits received and the actual cost of housing, which has nearly doubled across the past 12 months. Examining the geographic distribution of unaffordability, the research reveals that in numerous parts of the UK, less than 1% of homes can be considered affordable for those relying on local housing allowances. Uh, in the Ribble Valley of Lancashire, for instance, 0% of homes were found to be within reach for prospective tenants. Um, so, Prudence, this new data paints a dire picture of housing unaffordability and the crisis that it brings. Um, how did we get into this situation and where are we headed uh, if we don't solve it imminently uh, this is completely horrendous we ran a story a few weeks ago in uh, homes and property about the number of families so children in temporary accommodation in london is at record highs it's in the thousands you could fill the royal albert hall 14 times with the number of children children living in temporary accommodation this is since last November, which seems to be this strange tipping point for private rentals when all of a sudden families were often being evicted by their private landlords for various reasons, either rent increases or they were selling up and being thrown on to the mercies of the council because there was no more housing in their area that met their local housing allowance provision. Um, it's, a it's a complete scandal. It's been building for a long time all of the kind of mechanisms have been in place for this for years it is obviously to do with social housing and the lack thereof it's a totally false economy as far as i can tell it's it's kind of classic government moves of effectively subsidizing private landlords with some degree of housing benefit rather than spending what in the long run would be less money quite a lot of people have done those sums and it would be less money to build new social housing where people could live at affordable rents i mean that's really it i mean it sounds like uh, you're pointing the picture to like a lot of policy uh, which is behind this but it is that sort of dodging the issue that this cultural factor that in politics in society so much attention and credit is given to like home ownership people on the property ladder like there were pages and pages in newspapers dedicated to that and the art of that and the kind of um aspirations around it um but at the same time you got a chunk of people um which we've known this crisis is brewing for for decades mm -hmm. um which is just you know, not really getting the coverage at all there has been a lot of talk about the rental crisis certainly in the kind of 
property media side of things, it has been growing. And I, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, mortgages get all the headlines, renters uh, are ignored. But I, I'm not actually sure I agree that that has been the case recently. I do think it has been the case for decades. I think that is true. Um, and I think an interesting thing that's happening, actually, is you've got all these kind of middle-class newspaper reporters of a certain age who own their own homes and have been happily paying mortgages and all the rest of it. And they didn't really believe that rent was a problem or rent was expensive or rent was happening. You know, they didn't know about it. And all of a sudden, their children are entering the world of being adults and having to pay their way and are, are suddenly revealing to them this toxic property market that actually has been in existence for, for years and years and years. There was a fascinating uh, report in Inside Housing the past week. Um, Rachel McLean, who's housing minister, was speaking at Housing 2023 conference. And it was put to her that um, the figures she was quoting about their 250,000 homes being delivered through the Affordable Housing Homes Programme uh, were incorrect. Okay, So basically the reporter highlighted the fact that... Um, 161,000 social rent homes were completed since 2010. But before, between 1997 and 2010, 362,000 homes have been delivered. And the minister's response was simply, that is not a figure that I recognise. Given the kind of like the gravity of the situation you've just outlined, if social housing is part of it, how are we in a situation that politicians, and I'm sure it would be politicians of all colours, can go out and say, yeah, I just don't recognise that figure. I, I want you to consume my figure. And, you know, how does this work? It's bizarre, in isn't it? Because there are there are government statistics that are the ones that this she was, was the being ones, confronted with. Yeah, exactly. that's the, who, this the is the journalist was quoting national statistics. Yeah. Presume, you know, so the fact that she's then going, mm, nah. Like obviously, we know you can cut statistics many different ways. You know, completion starts in progress, whatever. But um, uh, look, the one thing I would say about housing ministers is let's not get too worked up about one. We'll have another one in like days because uh, there've been how many. It's a revolving door. Last week, the government announced a review of Homes England, the public body which funds new affordable housing projects. Uh, It's part of a public bodies review programme, so it's basically like a routine check subject to all non-departmental public bodies. But this one particular, the Homes England one, it's got a fair bit of coverage in the media and on social media. Some people even saying that the the organisation is being accused of land banking or that it's not fit for purpose. These are the... I mean, this is some of the the punditry that surrounded this. Should we be expecting a lot more from Homes England or is it actually basically doing everything it can within its remit and the problems are bigger than that organisation? Okay, so we're in, a, we're in an era of massive labour shortages, hugely expensive materials and scarcity. Um, and ex- prices for land is Prices roof. for land are through the roof. So, you know, and Homes England do try to do some quite creative things with public-private partnership, which, you know, is at least one way of kind of getting things started. They are also battling nimbyism to a huge degree. So, And, and that is a massive electoral issue where there are entire constituencies where they are going to have to fight to build one tiny bungalow or something you know so there there are a lot of headwinds there not a lot of support for house building actually you know people talk about house building but nobody wants it next door um nobody is willing to enforce it happening and you know you get people of both parties opposing things like building flats on a car park i mean what 
often they're proposing putting the park, car park underground anyway, so you're not even losing your parking spaces if that's what you really care about. But I do think one thing we need to be promising people more when we're building big volumes of housing is it has to be coming immediately with doctors, schools, libraries, leisure centres, all of the things that we all rely on, you know, and that might make people more amenable to housing in their own backyards. Plans to close nearly all of the UK's railway ticket offices have been confirmed by the Rail Delivery Group. This was reported by The Guardian. The move, which has been strongly opposed by the RMT union, will see more than a thousand offices targeted for closure as part of the government's proposals to, quote, modernise the railway. Campaigners warn that shelving manned ticket offices will have a detrimental effect on the mobility of vulnerable passengers and people with disabilities when it comes to rail travel. However, proponents of the scheme argue that with only one in eight tickets purchased through ticket offices, the public would be better served by staff moved to broader roles within the stations. Whatever that means. The future of ticket offices has been a key sticking point in the wider dispute over pay for rail workers and responding to the upcoming closures plan, RMT General Secretary Mike Lynch said he would, quote, bring into effect the full industrial force of the union to stop any plans. So it sounds like some battle lines are being drawn. Um, he went on, quote, the train operating companies and the government must understand that we will vigorously oppose any moves to close ticket offices. We will not merely sit by and allow thousands of jobs to be sacrificed or see disabled and vulnerable passengers left unable to use the railways as a result. End quote. So, Prudence, um, what impact could the closure of these ticket offices have on rail passengers? Um, one in eight is still seems like quite a large proportion of people. Um <laughs> And is there a danger this could dis disproportionately affect some groups in society more than others? Uh, by some groups, do you mean people like me who cannot tell the difference between an off-peak, a super off-peak, a day return, a two singles? Yeah, um, can anyone? You know, uh, I think until they sort out the labyrinthine uh, pricing of and, and completely opaque and designed to trick you pricing of, of rail tickets... We still need some people who can explain to us, this will get you there the fastest, this will get you there the cheapest, this will get you there any time you want to go. But yeah, equally, you know, you go to any station and there is a queue at the ticket office, you know, any of the major mainline stations. I think they're not closing them at, at big stations, right? So like King's Cross will still have a ticket office or whatever, but I think I saw. But there's, there's queues, there's huge queues at these ticket offices. And what if you've got a problem? What if you've got a complaint? Like, are we all going to have to speak to some bot who never gives us a refund? Or again, it's like the same with the cashless society. It's fine for most people, but for a significant minority, it's going to be really tricky. Um, OK, we're on to the culture section. Some big things that have happened uh, in the past week. The Young V&A, used to be called the Museum of Childhood, I think, uh, has opened after, reopened, sorry, after a £13 million redevelopment by Dematos Ryan uh, with displays by AOC. Those are two architecture firms in, based in London. Um, items on display range from a 2300 BC Syrian rattle and a suit of Japanese samurai armour to nostalgic raft of cartoon gameplay characters from Pepper the Pig, Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles. I certainly remember that one, Kermit the Frog. Also Barbie, Pokemon and SpongeBob SquarePants um, in, across three permanent galleries, each designed for different age groups from babies and toddlers to teens. Um, what do you make of this? Have you been following the story of the young V&A? Um, I have a little bit. I used to live in Bethnal Green and I used to pop in from time to time to yeah. see the Rachel White Reed dolls' houses. 
And I think they're still there, so I'm happy. And apparently children love it. I mean, it's been pointed out by the architecture critic Rowan Moore. Um, there's a big controversy brewing. It's been reported by artsprofessional.co.uk about some mildly pro-trans material being removed from display. Yeah, I saw that. So it seems like um, immediately um, controversies erupted with the opening of the museum. I mean, have they... Uh, they kind of overstepped the mark with it. it I mean, it's been described as just a, simply a, a poster advocating trans rights that was taken off display, in, I think, in the shop or something. I like think that. they've taken something out of the bookshop as in well. The bookshop. There was a book that that they've removed from sale. Um, yeah, no, I think there have been controversies. Uh, the only thing I really know about it is our arts reporter took his four-year-old son and the four-year-old son really loved it. So over here on the Greenwich Peninsula, uh, there's some new cultural openings. At the Now Gallery, which is the big building quite near to North Greenwich Station, um, there's a new show by Simone Brewster. Um, but there's also uh, on the tide nearby installations by Ian Davenport and Marwan Kabor. Um Prudence, it's been an immense uh, pleasure to feature you on the show this week. Um, Thanks where... for having me. It's been really fun. Ah, yeah. Where should listeners go to stay up to speed with uh, your writing and your is there socials or is there a website where they can cover uh, follow your uh, journalism? First step: pick up a paper on a Wednesday evening standard Wednesday evenings, um, and then obviously. Uh, all of the stuff that I write and commission is also on standard.co.uk forward slash homes and property. I've got an Instagram, I've got a Twitter, uh, it's patchy. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable.